0: Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. I'm so excited about my guest, Terrence Moses. Terrence Moses is the founder of Neighbors Helping Neighbors PDX. A friend of mine who lives in Kenton said that he's just been invaluable to their community in regard to his assistance with homeless people. If you live in North Portland, you might also know him. He is a retired vet and he picks up trash at homeless camps. He shows compassion to absolutely everybody he meets. The friend that told me about him who lives near his neighborhood said that he's just been an incredible resource to not just the neighborhood, but homeless people in terms of connecting them with services and resources. And he's, this is stuff that he feels called to do. He is in touch with leaders in the city. He speaks to Sam Adams relatively regularly. In fact, my friend who lives in Kenton told me that at one point there was a, it might still be there, there was a web page um, as part of the City of Portland web pages that directed people to call Terrence Moses if they had a homeless encampment that was growing out of control and becoming dangerous for the homeless and the housed residents within that neighborhood. And, in fact, there have been news articles done about Terrence and the work that he has done at the behest and the the request of the city. The city just doesn't handle things, and they call Terrence to handle things. This article in particular I'm looking at is from KATU. It's a local ABC affiliate. Portland prioritizes homeless camp cleanups ahead of high-profile events. It's September 21st, 2021, and it says that Friday night, Terrence got a text from Sam Adams, who used to be the mayor of Portland and now is kind of known as our current mayor, Wheeler's bulldog, saying, hey, Terrence, hope you're well, hope all is good, I've got a big favor to ask you. It was Sam Adams, Mayor Ted Wheeler's director of strategic innovations whatever that means. Back to the article. He was asking Moses to help him clean up near Delta Park because the Grand Prix of Portland was happening and someone had dumped another pile of garbage near the event. I was going to be in the area anyway and it's not in my nature to ignore and say no so of course I said yeah I'll meet you there said Moses Adams showed up the next morning and they cleaned at least you know Sam Adams cleaned too I think that's kind of cool not just near the Portland International Raceway they also picked up trash off Interstate 5 along Killingsworth Moses thanked Adams when he posted photos on his nonprofit's Facebook page but the experience left him scratching his head that was a call of desperation said Moses but it also tells me that big business tell the city when to move Moses said he didn't need a text about trash from Sam Adams to know a big event was coming to town. He knew when he saw the city cleaning up homeless camps. The city's own homeless toolkit shows three different camps around Portland International Raceway were removed during the week leading up to the event. Two camps were posted for removal. The article goes on to talk about how Adams wouldn't do an on-camera interview, but the the ABC affiliate that did this article is asking what is happening in the city. Our resources stretch so thin that Sam Adams needs to personally text people like Terrence Moses who are willing to literally get his hands dirty to get something cleaned up when quote unquote guests are in town. And Sam said, no, this is just what Terrence does and acknowledge there are a lot more, th- more things to do in Portland to clean it up. The city needs a lot of help. He understands that people are frustrated, I mean, I think we know, I think we know he reached out to Terrence Moses because Terrence Moses is a doer. He gets things done. He reminds me a lot of Kevin Dahlgren. He knows how to fix things. He knows how to clean things up and he goes out and he does it. And Kevin Dahlgren, as you know, go back and listen to his interview with Andrea Suarez from We Heart Portland and We Heart Seattle. They also assist with cleanup of homeless camps and they reunite homeless people with their family. They get them connected to services and Kevin is a licensed drug and alcohol counselor. So back to my guest Terrence Moses today who reminds me a lot of Kevin because he's just such a doer and he has big, a big vision and he feels called to do this kind of work. He... Works with homeless people 50 hours a week according to this KATU article and he said he's just watching things get worse and worse and worse and he says neighbors helping neighbors PDX doesn't get any public funding isn't that incredible that Sam Adams is calling Terrence up and asking him to clean up the city and the city isn't giving Terrence any public funding we know and we've explored on this podcast before about all these organizations all these nonprofits that are getting funding from the city of Portland, but not this one, not the one that Sam Adams has on speed dial. They can get things done. Neighbors helping neighbors. They are always looking for volunteers or donations to help pay for trips to the dump or care kits for the homeless is what this article says. Now, if you want to know more about neighbors helping neighbors, you can go to nhnpdx.org and that's where you can find Terrence's uh, website and you can find out more about them. You can donate. You can volunteer. If you enjoy this interview with Terrence and you are moved by him at all, I encourage you to please go to his website, nhnpdx.org. Donate time, money. Make sure that you... Let him know that you appreciate what he is doing for the city. And he started this in spring of 2016 as a retired serviceman. He's a he's a veteran, like I said, and a Kenton resident. He just saw the need to start paying attention to this homeless crisis and reduce friction between housed people and people who are homeless, who are setting up all these encampments. Because, of course along with these encampments as any of us know who have eyes and ears come trash come noise come all sorts of things I mean listen listen to the podcasts about the people who live in Lentz and from the people who live in Lentz and you'll you'll get a taste of what's going on listen to the T.J. Browning podcast about the homeless encampments in Laurelhurst and you'll get a taste of what it's like to live next to these enormous homeless camps and Terrence explains that a primary source of irritation is trash. And so, because that's such a source of friction, Terrence just picks it all up. That's what he does. And he created a twice weekly free trash collection service, just in service of the neighborhood. And frankly, he's serving these homeless people that are creating all this trash. So, this man is a gem because this city is full of trash. Please enjoy my interview with this gem, Terrence Moses. Terrence Moses, thank you for coming in and welcome to Rational in Portland.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Tell me a bit about your organization, Neighbors Helping Neighbors.
1: Well, what we do at Neighbors Helping Neighbors is we go out and communicate with our houseless folks. We try to build a bond with them and we also let them know that we're only there to help, not to move them on. We provide the much needed trash removal, the trash organization, and the uh, understanding that we want to be part of your community and understand the needs that you have and we want to try and provide those for you. We also provide food, clothing, and trash bags so that they can bag up their trash.
0: How did you end up in Portland? Are you a native?
1: I'm not, I'm originally from Philadelphia after I got out of the service, I moved here to visit my mother. And when I got here, I was just like, this place is great. I like this.
0: So your mom was living in Portland? Yes. Um, is she still with us?
1: No, of course she moved back to oh, the she East did, Coast. You
0: moved here and she moved back?
1: <laughs> yeah, she moved back about the 10, 11 years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're here. And you said you were in the service. So you, off air, we were talking, you were in the Army and the Navy, and you retired at uh, le- the level E6, which is sergeant.
1: Correct. I, st- I first went into the Navy thinking that that's what I wanted to do, and then once I get out there on the water, and realized, oh, I don't like a whole lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> so this wasn't going to work for yeah, me. Yeah, Navy
0: wouldn't be a good place mm-hmm. if, you're, if, if water yeah. isn't for you. No. And so then you went to the Army. Correct. And then when you left military service you had a computer career which you still have right? exactly
1: so I still do computer repair and maintenance and IT and custom builds
0: and you custom build computers yes and did you learn these techniques and these skills in the military
1: I did I learned some of them in the Navy and then when I came out I went to a, a technical school to learn the the rest and the basics
0: and you have your own business here in Portland I do yes. What is that called? It's
1: Tech Net Easy Computer Services Repair.
0: How do we find you? If somebody wants to get a computer repaired, because um, obviously you use this business to fund Neighbors Helping Neighbors, and if if we if anybody out there is listening and is compelled to, to assist you, they should use your computer repair service. How do they find you? Are you on the Internet?
1: I am. You can find me at techneteasy.com. You can just Google it, and it'll come up. Or you can uh, reach out to me on Facebook at TechNetEasy, and you can find me that way as well. Or you can just give me a phone call at 503-490-2598.
0: When did you start Neighbors Helping Neighbors?
1: I started Neighbors Helping Neighbor in the spring of 2016.
0: What led you to start that?
1: I answered a call on a social media app called NextDoor.com, where another neighbor went out to talk with some houseless that was living along the peninsula trail, the cut, where they were just uh, having constant cop uh, feedback and problems with the neighbors. And he was just like, look, is there anybody out there want to help me go talk with these homeless folks and figure out how we can help them? And I answered the call, myself and Nick. We went around there. Who's Nick? Nick was the other, the actual person who made the request. And we went there together, we talked with them, we simply asked them, we only wanna help you, what can we do? And they said, we just need somebody to take away trash. And at that point, we decided we would provide them with trash bags and it was once a week trash pickup. And we only started out on a weekly basis, just picking up trash in that one location. And then we decided to walk the the cut from um, we'll it all the way down to Fezzenden to see how bad it was and we were shocked at how many people were living out there and then Nick could no longer do it. It was just overwhelming and he had some health issues and I just said I need to take this to the next level. I need to do more and then I just start building a map in North and Northeast Portland of houseless camps and then how I was going to maneuver around to service all these folks.
0: And you yourself are a homeowner in Kenton, so you understand the frustration with trash. I mean, there's trash all over the city, but when it's in your neighborhood, you understand why it's concerning to those people who are housed.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I totally understand why the house folks are in, up in arms, because nobody wants to see trash in their neighborhood, and nobody wants to see broken down cars and people living on the street in front of their houses but also understand that folks have nowhere to go. And if you politely talk and conversate with folks, you can find out and you can get them to move along and and do other things and, and pretty much lend a helping hand.
0: It say more about lending a helping hand.
1: Well, lending a helping hand is if you're comfortable, you can go outside and you can start a conversation with folks Most importantly, by introducing yourself and letting them know that you come in meaning no harm and ask them, how can I help you? Is there, do do you need a little water? Is there some food or can I give you a trash bag to help you clean up? Then you can start breaking down that, that fight or flight sense and build that bridge to, if you keep your area clean, I'll provide you the trash bags. You could put a bag a week in my bin, then they will be much more cleaner, much more receptive, and then you just kind of let them know that you know the state ordinance is you can only park here for three days, and then you have to move on. And most of the time, I would say 98% of the time, they will pack up and then move to the next next block, and then that neighbor start doing the same thing. Also, I encourage them if they're not comfortable, please call us, and we'll come out there. We'll talk to them and then we'll put that on our daily schedule and go around and make sure that the trash is picked up and make sure that they're keeping their area clean so that it doesn't become a nuisance.
0: When you say there's nowhere to go, the city says that that there are shelter beds available. Have you ever, I know you interact with homeless people on a regular basis because offline we were sort of talking about your techniques. And it sounds like, as you just said, one of the things that you do is you connect with them. Do they have any understanding of the kinds of services that the city has available for them to transition away from the street?
1: Let's face it. The city even admitted that about 25% of the 300 shelter beds that they have go unused. Right. And when I talk to folks about the shelter beds and going to a shelter... That's not what they want. Reason being, number one, they have to leave everything that they have, go get in line, try to get there to actually get a spot. Then they have to get up and they have to leave that next morning hoping that when they come back, their stuff will still be where they left it. Um, There's no security. There's often time uh, disagreements amongst them because you're living in the open quarters with about probably maybe 40 to 60 other people And the lack of staff that's in there doesn't allow them to actually feel safe and store their belongings. And who wants to go to a spot where you can only stay for six, seven hours and you have to get up and leave again?
0: Well, although they're all different, right? I mean, isn't that part of the problem? We've got this patchwork of shelters and some are in a certain way where you got to leave in the morning, and some are like Bybee Lakes, where Mm -hmm. it's more of a transitional housing, and some are... I mean, we just have this patchwork, and no one in the city or county... Have you noticed this, Terrence? Nobody in the city or county, certainly not the state, they're completely checked out, seems to have any interest in creating a database or creating any kind of a system to allow people to navigate this in a efficient way where we have some understanding of what we have
1: exactly and, and what
0: the requirements are
1: exactly that and, that and that's part of the problem now Bobby Lakes I am horrible with names but I've met him Allen Alan, yes he was homeless himself right and places like that we do need because those get those are designed for the folks that are willing and ready and able to get back into some sort of life.
0: Yes, and you're right. That's different than a lot of the people that you're talking to.
1: Exactly. So, places like that we do need, and and they do great work, but what we need in this state and situation we're in right now is we need to meet folks where they're at, and we need to provide services for them that fit their scenario where they're at, meaning um it's a, it's a complicated situation, but it's it also is. easily fixed if we are willing to invest the dollars in the infrastructure first.
0: Oh, we have the dollars.
1: I, oh, yeah. They, <laughs> the money is there. They're
0: going all over the place. The money
1: is there. The problem is it's badly and poorly spent.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. That, and there's no streamline of any of this. There's no way that you could flip open a binder, say, and say, well, look, based on what you want, mm-hmm. these are the places that you could go. I mean, half of them nobody even knows about.
1: Exactly. Nobody talks to nobody. Nobody knows what the right hand is doing. The left hand don't know what the right hand is doing. The county don't want to work with the city. The city don't want to work with the county.
0: Right, and there's this influx of, it looks like, seems to me, hundreds of nonprofits operating on their own
1: deal mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh,
0: that are either publicizing what they're doing or not being funded by the city and County who are also don't seem interested in publicizing what these nonprofits are doing mm-hmm. or not. So this is all sort of operating under the shadows and I don't, it just seems incredibly difficult to get any of these people anywhere really unless we have any of this information which no one seems interested in streamlining or sharing or putting anything any sort of comprehensive really we should we should have an internet service don't you think where we can just you could type something in and you could go in there and you can find out all the different options and you could find out what's available on any given day at any given Mm -hmm. time.
1: And the in the city and the county will tell you, oh yeah, well we have all this data, we have it, we know. Yeah, but they yet, don't share it. Nobody can find it, or and, right? They don't share it, and that's and that's part of the problem is nobody knows how to get it. The
0: Sharon Myron was in here as a guest when she was running for chair of mm-hmm. Multnomah County Commission, and unfortunately she lost. But she believes that the. She believes part of the problem is the data that they do have, at least that the county is collecting, is not accurate.
1: It's not. It's totally outdated. So
0: you know that, that too. And how did you find that out?
1: Just by talking with uh, commissioners and looking for their information and listening to what they're saying. the The data that the city uses mostly comes from people that they are housed and that they're low-income housing to say, okay, well, we kept X amount of people from becoming homeless by giving them affordable living, but the folks that are living actually outside, they have no data on other than their so-called what we counted based upon tent, yes.
0: Yeah, which, which. well, and of course, the county's handing out tents on our dime. Um, and I don't know if you've heard this, but everyone... Including people who have formerly served at the Joint Office, tell me that point in time count is inaccurate, and yet no one has an interest in doing an accurate count.
1: Exactly, it's totally inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, I, I I took part in that count, but it was it's totally inaccurate because the folks that are in a tent usually aren't there when you count it, so you just go in there and you count. Okay, there's a tent there. That looked like somebody was there, so we. Basically, we say that's one person there, when technically it could be 10 people sitting in that tent. So we have no accurate count. We could just have assumptions of how many people are actually living on the street. And those assumptions are are getting us mixed data.
0: Yeah, or no data. I mean, it's if it's not reliable, it's garbage. Garbage right. in, garbage out. So you say meet people where they're at. I know in... San Diego, uh, when he was mayor, Kevin Falconer had a deal where he would take um, people's belongings and he had lockers and things like that for them so that he can get them out of these burned out RVs or off the street and then help unite them with, with family members, etc. Is that the kind of thing that you think would be helpful? I mean, if these people, like you said, they're worried about their stuff. If they had somewhere to store their stuff, do you think that would move us in the direction, that in a positive direction here?
1: I think it would because we have hundreds and thousands of storage units across the Portland area. And if we can create a system like that where we take some of these storage units or even uh, a warehouse, and it's gonna start with first talking with the houseless so that we can determine what's really valuable and what's really not and get them to understand that this is not all that valuable, this is valuable, we'll put that away for you so you're not carrying so much baggage around. And then we work on getting them a place that they can call home, which necessarily isn't the home that we talk about today, which is brick and mortar. Sometimes it's gonna be um, tiny home living, and that's gonna be the key to at least getting people out of the elements and getting them into something safe.
0: Yeah, this is just inhumane. It's inhumane, and it's in conflict. The way that that we're letting these people lay on the streets or in these burned out RVs is inhumane. But it's also in conflict with just livability in the city and trying to get to work and pay your taxes and yes, what have you.
1: And it's not it's not a hard it's not a hard solution to to fix.
0: So what's wrong with this? city, and county. What the hell is
1: wrong with Portland? What's wrong with Portland is, they keep playing the blame game. Oh, well, it's the it's Multnomah County responsibility, so it's not mine. Oh, well, it's the responsibility of the city, not mine. Oh, well, it belongs to Peabot. Oh, well, it belongs to right. ODOT. And nobody wants to take ownership of it. When we have a hierarchy, the mayor, who can just say, you know what? It's all about responsibility. Let's band together. Let's fix this problem. Let's figure out where we need to start to start making a solution to fix it.
0: Recently, he's saying, the mayor, is saying he's just gonna cut the county out. He, he's tired of, of this blame game. He's just gonna cut the county out and deal with it himself. What do you think about that?
1: Um, that would be a huge mistake.
0: Talk, say to, more about that. To
1: cut the county out because a lot of the services come from the county, um, so I don't think you can literally cut them out. I think what he should be focusing on it, is how to include all the counties that, that make up Multnomah County, or make all the counties that make up Portland in general.
0: Oh, you mean like Metro? Right. Everything in Metro? A-
1: everything in, in Portland Metro. But to, to solely cut out Multnomah County is saying that, um, basically, if you cut out Multnomah County, you're cutting off of, off of Multnomah County, so you're cutting off a huge port, uh, portion of Portland saying that, okay, well, we're not going to provide any services to the county of Multnomah. So that means any fiscal dollars that was you allocated for Multnomah County, you're now going to stop, and that's going to tie Multnomah County's hands.
0: Although, isn't this mostly a Portland problem? I mean, if you talk to... Kevin Dahlgren, who works for the city of Gresham, Gresham is on top of this. Yes. They, they don't seem to have this issue.
1: No, this is solely uh, uh, Multnomah County. And, it,
0: and Multnomah County certainly isn't solving it. I mean, they're spending, what, tens of thousands of dollars on tarps and tents? Yes. So I think, isn't Wheeler's argument like, look, we have the money, you have the money, but you're not interested in doing anything constructive with it. So, forget it. We don't need to work with you.
1: I, I, I think um, we do need to work with them, but I don't think we we, we need federal dollars.
0: Oh, we, we need to this call a, a state of emergency. Right, we
1: need to call a state of remer- I emergency. I Absolutely agree with you. And we don't need to require a Multnomah County budget, but we need to sell to the feds, state of emergency. Yeah. You need to funnel all kind of money this way. For this solution and this solution only. Right. And w- it's going to take more than just local dollars to, f- to oh, fix it. Oh, yes, it, it but is. But we have the dollars.
0: Oh, oh, we have. We've spent more than almost anybody. I mean, the L.A. Times did a whole story on the hundreds of millions and millions. And it, it, apparently, at some point with all these taxes, in just a few years, we'll, we'll be at billions.
1: Exactly. It's
0: not about the money. We have the money. We yeah. need, like you said, I mean, if anything, the FEMA-style... People stepping in from the federal government could just at least provide some kind of streamlined leadership.
1: Exactly, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take some real leadership. And, and and let's face it, this these mega camps are never going to get off the ground and get running in an <laughs> effective way.
0: No, because if, it's it's the city. Right. They can't run programs.
1: Exactly. We they can't we manage first,
0: one dime.
1: Th- exactly. We first have to build up our infrastructure, which means. We have to build up our, our uh, mental facilities. We have to hire folks.
0: Which we have no interest in. Which we have in. no
1: interest in doing, exactly. We have to build up our structure for um, uh, medical. We have to have a, some policy for medical for all because these people are very sick. Our houseless folks are dealing with gout. Uh, well, but
0: we have that, right? I mean, that's one of the few things we that, do well is the Oregon Health Plan, right? But it's
1: not for all.
0: The Oregon Health
1: Plan. I mean, the Oregon Health Plan is for all, but it's it's the barriers are so high that folks can't get to it.
0: We'll talk about that, guy. I don't understand.
1: To be to uh, apply for Oregon Health Plan, you have to uh, meet certain criteria. But the criteria is so high that the folks out on the street, number one, they don't they 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 don't have ID, they don't have an address, so that excludes them right then and there. They can go to the hospital and sit in the ER, and Uh, and I've been down there, and they don't get seen because they're put very last. So that's another barrier. But the biggest barrier is not having the identification and address to actually sign up for these services, to get the mail, to get the um, letters. They require you to go down there face-to-face, and then when you sign up, they say, okay, well, can you come back because we don't have time or we don't have uh, nobody available to talk to you now. we got to go back down there, and most of them aren't going to do it.
0: But eventually they're seen in the ER, right? Like Sharon Myron, who's an ER doc, um, and a, a couple other ER docs who are listeners say that that it's a revolving door. It's nothing it but is. homeless people. It
1: is. It's a revolving door. And but you're
0: right. We do need to fix that.
1: Right. We need to fix that. And, and I mean, they,
0: I mean, they, they are getting seen. The county builders. they're
1: going to get seen because the county hospital, they have to see them. So they're going to eventually get seen. And mm-hmm. most of them uh, don't make their way there because no, they don't. because of uh number one getting there is, is is almost practically impossible and unless they call for an ambulance
0: which sometimes which they sometimes
1: do. they they will if it's you know emergency enough but there's a, there's a whole lot we still need to do to make things more easily accessible for folks that are struggling
0: well and don't we need to deal with the root cause here i mean these are people who you know, half the time renewed. Don't know their name. Mm-hmm. I, we've we've got comorbidities of severe mental illness, severe addiction issues. Yes. I, I mean, don't we have to kind of have to deal with some of those root causes? Like this idea that we're not interested in the mental hospital anymore. I I think is tragic.
1: It is, and we have to deal with it. And the root causes of that. Is exactly because we wiped out all these services, yeah. and we continue to wipe out these yes. services when they have to make budget cuts that part of the medical industry is always the first to get cut we're never investing in 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 ones mental health so we're not creating hospitals or they create these day services what which, which is not, not what enough. nobody needed some of these folks and i will say easily say about 50 to 60% of these people need round the clock medical care yes for their mental health
0: that's exactly right maybe more
1: and maybe more and I do understand that the um, justice system is trying to uh, redevelop the, um, the mandate for them to... Uh,
0: well, I think Wheeler is. Right,
1: to try and get them to be committed, to, make, to relax the policies on self-committed, or one can call and say this person needs to be committed for, to make them get the health treatment that they need, but even that's still two years in the making. Oh, at least. Making. I mean,
0: it's just, it's going to be, because we don't, we don't, we haven't invested, like you said, in these mental health facilities, these institutions. We're not interested in institutionalization until, what, Wheeler started talking about it like two weeks ago after Mayor Adams from New York City did. And so we just don't have the infrastructure there. I mean, even even if we could get, it, get the law changed so it's not harm to self or others, which is Sharon Myron said, is just a bizarrely high, high, high threshold. I mean, there are people who don't know wh- the time of day or yes. who the president is who right. don't meet that threshold. Exactly. Um, and And even if we could get them in under this system, where in the hell would they go? Because the state is so... I don't know libertarian. I don't know. I mean, certainly the ACLU is, is part of the problem. It seems like um, they're so into this idea of hey, it's their right to be mentally ill, and we're just not going to invest in a mental health facility or the hospitals that where let, let's say Wheeler got that done tomorrow. I mean, where in the hell are these people going to go right. to get the kind of care they need? Where are we going to get the psychiatrist? Exactly. They're not here.
1: America doesn't care about their people. And until we invest in people, this kind of problems are going to continue to exist. Um, We have to, when we get get free education up to the 12th grade, and then we say bye-bye, now it's up to you to do the rest. So we're not making it, we're not investing in people' lives to say right after high school, we're going to make it easy enough for you to go into either a technical school or into a, a college, so that you can continue education. Number one, into a, a medical field, because that's where we need most of our help. We're not we're not streamlining our education system to make it easy for students and for younger folks to continue their education to become something better than what they already are, or become something that that we need, like more doctors and more uh, clinicians and more. Uh, mental staff. We're not, we're not creating that. We're stripping those away so people aren't having these, these um, types of choices. When I was coming up in the, in the 70s and 80s, there were technical institutes that we can go to and get these. Uh, when we couldn't afford college, we can get these education and continue a certain part of uh, life and, and then get into these fields. But now all that is going away
0: you know you said uh america doesn't care about its people and i tend to agree with you but you know the argument on the other side of that is well you're stripping these people's liberty away um i i mean i think the argument to that is at some point it's hard to enjoy your liberty when you don't know what your name is and i think then they say well but You know, it's um, they could know if they wanted to take their meds, but they don't, and they should be free to do that. I mean, what would you say to that argument?
1: I would say to that argument is if that was your child, wouldn't you want somebody to tell them that, hey, look, you need some help? Wouldn't you want somebody to say, let me give you a hand? Wouldn't you want somebody to say, there's a better way? When we was coming up, our neighbors was able to chastise us and tell us that uh, that was wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Go home and, and, and I'm going to tell your mom. And then they called your mother and then you dealt with the consequences after that. But now it's like that community is not there where your neighbor can say to you that, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not right.
0: Or let's get you some help.
1: Or Right.
0: Well, and, you know, I've talked to parents I had this woman, Terry Anderson, in here, and it was just absolutely heartbreaking because her son had super severe schizophrenia, and parents can really only do so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, she takes him to OHSU over and over again. He gets evaluated. He gets a diagnosis. He doesn't want to take his medicine. Even though she gets him his medicine, she can't make him take his medicine because the bar is so high to get him committed. Mm -hmm. She gets him committed over and over again. They release him over and over again, and of course, then he died under the Burnside Bridge of a fentanyl overdose. Not because he was interested in fentanyl, but because he had severe schizophrenia, he ended up mm-hmm. on the streets, and of course, along comes fentanyl.
1: Exactly. In the U.S., we practice medicine. We don't do medicine. We don't do treatment. We practice medicine. We're not inter- in, into it to for long term cure, and that's just what I, I I believe it is. Like we just that's why they call it, you know, a practitioner, or you know, we we just continue to practice instead of healing people.
0: Yeah. How do you do this day after day? Because I'm, (laughs) I feel so depressed. I, even just talking about this, I just feel like it's, uh, it feels insurmountable. So how do you get up every morning and... Um, do not only your job, which I'm sure is demanding, but this Neighbors Helping Neighbors organization, which basically consists of you acting as in, engaged in this very stressful job where you're mediating disputes between housed and unhoused people.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it's easy for me because, number one, I care about people. It's easy for me because I have a loving family that supports it because uh, everything I do outside takes away from uh, yes. my home life so but I'll every day getting up that knowing that there's somebody outside that needs help and I was able to get up and continue to do it that's what I'm gonna do and also it's, it's believing in something bigger than you that's a big part of it is knowing that there's something bigger than me and that's why I'm able to still get up as long as I'm able to get up and do then I'm going to get out there and do something to try and make somebody else's life better. Because let's face it, a person you come in contact with on a daily basis could be that person's last time you see them and it's how you interact with them. If we continue to turn our nose and try and and go away from them, you just made made that decision for that person, whether it becomes a, a, a theft, whether it becomes a suicide, because we have a choice that we can stop and talk to that person and just validate them, may at least extend his life by one more day or may under, let him understand that people still care about us, that I can still go on.
0: Given that there's, is, as we just talked about, there's this patchwork of services and there's no real way to navigate it, And given that this state, city, county seems to have absolutely, and frankly the country, seems to have no interest at all in solving the root causes of any of this, how do you, what do you do for the homeless? That, I mean, do do you feel like anything you do can touch the root cause?
1: I don't think the services that we provide will not touch the root cause but it will still give that person and those persons a fighting chance. And as long as people like us that are doing the the groundwork out there and we continue to advocate for them, still gives them that much closer to hope and to some uh, assistance that they may turn their life around. But the root cause is in our government system and until our government elected officials do right by people this situation will not go away.
0: What do you do to advocate for them for homeless people?
1: I advocate for housing for them and not this, not the typical housing. I'm a big advocate of the tiny house model. I try to get land that is not being used to create these tiny houses. I work with other services like Catholic Charities to try and help develop more of these programs and I try and confront the city to get them to do more than what they're doing to help folks.
0: The people that you talk with, the homeless people you talk with, are they interested in these tiny houses?
1: majority of the folks that I talk to, I see about 300 people a day just in North Portland.
0: 300 people a day.
1: Just in North Portland. And some of them are about the... And they're, they're the same folks. So and you know them well. So I know them not all by name, but they know my truck when they see it coming. They know me when, when they see me coming because I try to make it known that I'm only there to help them and to provide a need for them.
0: And... In regard to the tiny houses, why do you think, do you think that's the solution because that's something that they seem like they're willing to accept, is that why you think that?
1: I think that's more than something they're willing to accept as opposed to a a shelter bed, because they can lock a door, they can go and come, and they, they have liberties and freedoms to do some things up to a certain point, and they do better in a community that looks like them and that resembles them.
0: You know, uh, Vicki, when she came in here, said... She, she, of course, you and I share a mutual friend mm-hmm. in Vicki. And she came in here as a guest. She's a co-founder of the Portland Party and was talking about Portland Party. She also talked about you. And it may or may not have been online, but she talked to me a lot about you. And she said and I think it's probably still up there, that the city of Portland has listed you as someone to contact if a housed person is having an issue with an encampment. Don't you find that amazing?
1: I do find that amazing, and <laughs> just—and we didn't find out about it until uh, a, a housed person actually called us and said that uh, we're having an issue with a houseless person in our neighborhood, would you come and, and help with that? The city referred you to us, and I was like, they did? And it was in southeast, and And, and my neighborhood is north and northeast because we, we believe in hyperlocal will actually mean more if it's a very hyperlocal, but if it starts one person going to multiple locations, it then it becomes not as effective. But what we try to do is replicate that in other neighborhoods so that they can then be create their own system and, and do what we're doing in their communities. But yes, I did find that <laughs> interesting that the city listed us as somebody they can call to help with this problem when they don't even assist us with funding.
0: And they have all the money in the world. Exactly. It's your tax dollars. Yep. So you don't get a dime. Neighbors helping neighbors doesn't get a dime from the city, but the city relies on neighbors helping neighbors to clean all this up.
1: Exactly, and that's what <laughs> we find so so funny. And now, now, I would say. I will say, just recently, Metro did start honoring our dump fees. So so it goes on the city account, and that just happened within the last, I think, six months. But of course, it happened at a time where. They ramped up their services where they're sweeping more, so that left less for us to do. But so I have to kind of be a l- little more nicer to the city since they did that. So I don't bash well, them as to much Metro, as I do. I well, guess. to Metro, yes. Yeah, our
0: thir- our Well,
1: Metro has always been layer of government. Yeah, Metro has been trying to figure out ways to help us even earlier on. They just never came to fruition.
0: That's shocking to me. Very shocking, and good for them,
1: yeah, so they, they, they have helped in that, and we still have a long way to go, and
0: how did uh, you convince them to see the light?
1: Um, working with Metro, um, they heard about me through I forget how they heard about me, but I did attended some of their meetings and um, and they were just very thankful for what I did but they could not figure out how to make it work where they could accept uh, us picking up trash and dumping it without being in direct partnership with the city. And we refused to be a partner with the city because their, their goals didn't align with our goals.
0: Say more about that, the goals not aligning.
1: Their, their goals was to just clean up the streets, move people, remove the trash, and and move to the next site. Go where they say go. Our goals is we're trying to help people stay where they're at. We're trying to help them manage their trash and build a bridge between the housed and the unhoused until we had a better solution. So that's why we didn't take some of the, the – that's why we didn't fall in line with some of the other uh, – Oh. Um, grant opportunities that they had because we didn't want to partner with an organization that didn't see it the way we saw it.
0: Well, stay where they're at in accordance with, as you said, the law, which I think wasn't enforced for years, may, mm-hmm. may start being enforced, but um, you said that you let them know, hey, in, in about three days you're going to have to move. Right. So they do, you do try to encourage them to move. If
1: they're on a public city street in parking in a neighborhood, I try to encourage them to only stay there for the three days and then to move to a newer location. So this way it's not just in one neighborhood at that particular time all the time.
0: So are they just kind of going, do you just kind of encourage them to go from neighborhood to neighborhood or is is there somewhere that you can direct them to that's not, you know, in the middle of? kids and right. families
1: and... When when they did, when we did have at the point of time where it was at its highest where they were camping along um, Union Court down by Delta Park and, and... That was a mess. I would direct them down there to set up a location down there where we more serviced. It was out of the way of kids. It was out of the neighborhoods. Right. It was just in a so-called unincorporated neighborhood where they can go. And that worked for a while, but then it became just a huge mess, just like Thirty Third. So then, that's when all the the uh, hype came to move this in, and encourage the sweeps and the not camping on the freeway overpasses. Which I understand that because that is a dangerous it's stretch dangerous of land to be everybody. on. Exactly.
0: The, so is Delta Park cleaned
1: up now? Delta Park is totally cleaned up.
0: Is really? with, with a,
1: Exactly. There's a, there's one part of Delta Park that is. Still being occupied, but it's it's totally cleaned up, and they put these huge hideous logs out there to keep people from parking. But yeah, they totally removed.
0: It was getting really scary, though. It I mean, I understand th- that. that there is an argument to. So Jesse Burke, do you know her? Yes, I do. Yes. Okay, love Jesse. When she was in here, um, and actually T J. Br- do you know T J. Browning from? Yes, Long I do. Uh huh. Right? So you're connected with all these people. I, I really enjoy them. And they had an interesting argument. They agree with basically everything you say. The, but they had an interesting argument about the quote-unquote sweeps, which is, look, we can't allow these zombie RVs and these encampments to get enormous. Because mm-hmm. once they do, it's, it's, it's the next plague. It's cholera. It's, it's, you know, I mean, the vermin is incredible. Mm-hmm. The, the sweet. If it's not the plague, just the spreading of disease generally is. It's there. Um, the drugs are flowing like they never were before. The right. trash is the trash is probably more than y'all could even handle.
1: Oh, it was absolutely.
0: Oh yeah, and the hazardous waste. Yep. From the needles and the the you know blood spattered tourniquets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pipes and I mean it's just where do you begin what what do you think of that argument that you know yeah there needs to be somewhere for these people to go but it's it can't get too big
1: yeah and I agree I love Jesse to death and and I I believe everything she says because she is passionate for people in general yes and um you can't. You don't want him to get too big. But when I was talking to Sam,
0: Sam Adams, mm-hmm,
1: prior to his uh, going to re-election, and he asked, "What do we do?" Prior to
0: his reelection, trying as mayor? to reelect.
1: Wait, when he was trying to become. Re- oh, so this become, was back. Oh yeah, this was back. Uh, was this
0: back before he was mayor?
1: This was back. Um,
0: or second term. Second term,
1: when he was trying to In run percent. again.
0: So mayor mayor Adam Sam Adams had already been mayor. He was going to run again, and and he he got. How did he get connected with you?
1: Because he uh, was living in the neighborhood in Kenton, and he knew about what I was doing. He actually went out on a couple ride-alongs with me and and threw trash. Good for him. And uh, he he was going to rerun, and he wanted to talk to me about what should he do to help with the houseless situations.
0: What was your advice?
1: And my advice to him was you have to talk to the communities, get them involved, and... Then you create, you find a location and you keep the community involved, get buy-in. Create these tiny house villages and then that's the way you start. I said, but you have to talk to the communities first. You can't get a piece of land, say you're gonna put the place there and then start talking to folks without getting the buy-in and having the people to back you. And he said, well then what would we do about this enormous amount of trash? I said. First of all, we have a lot of land. I said, we need to dedicate a dedicated piece of land that we can call where they can park their cars in RVs, provide the proper sewage, give them the, the uh, restrooms that they need, and that will at least stop people from parking on the side of the roads. I said, there's a lot of public land that the city owns that we could use for RV parking and car parking so that there is out of the public eye and we could provide them the services. And I gave him, and, and we went down a whole list of ideas of what he could do to better uh, handle the, the situation around the houselessness, keep it from overflowing into the communities. And um, he, when he he didn't win, but he took some of those scenarios and and they used them, and he used.
0: Uh, he decided not to seek another term or something, right? Right. Of the breed love scandal. Exactly.
1: And. Um, So, they took some of those, they took some of that playbook and used some of it and trying to create these safe rest villages, which was just a total bust and a waste of money because now they're stopping the production on all of those. Well,
0: and they put them all right in the middle of the neighborhood. And then they put
1: them exactly, put them right in some of the worst spots too.
0: By a school. School. No screening for sex offenders, no screening for felons.
1: It's it's, it's not gonna be popular opinion because, I mean, people don't want them in their neighborhoods. So it's, it's gonna be a tough, but we, we, we have enough land in commercial-type settings that we could create enough space for people to exist so that we can start getting them the medical treatment, the addiction services, and not this in and out stuff. I mean, we need real services for them so that they can at least exist.
0: What about the argument that they don't want addiction services? I mean, I guess in this last... Um, quote-unquote sweep of the east side, I think it was hundreds and hundreds of people, and I, what, five people accepted addiction mm-hmm. services?
1: Yeah, and, and people are not going to be up front and right, ready to, you, you got to be ready to kick the habit, and when you're out there for three, four, five years addicted to narcotics or alcohol, you're not just going to immediately want services. So sometimes they're gonna just have to exist in that environment, but the services has to be there and ready to be uh, assist them when it's needed. So when they when we create these safe rest villages or these tiny houses, we have to have it staffed with addiction uh, personnel, mental personnel, and it's got to be around the clock. So if if we're not gonna be able to rehabilitate everyone, someone was just gonna exist with their addiction, but the medical services will be there so that th- they do it in kind of a safe environment where, for the lack of a better, where, where they can resuscitate them if something should happen, or at least be there and give them the proper send-off. Yeah, I,
0: I noticed with one of these safe rest villages, you know, Alan Evans, who's Doing baby legs, he was mm-hmm. gonna run one of them, and he pulled out because he just said, "I can't keep these people safe. I can't keep the neighbors safe. I can't keep these people safe from from each other." What about that argument that that we just can't? I mean, because of this severe mental illness, drug abuse, the comorbidities of both, the tr- the tr- frankly trauma of living on the streets for mm-hmm. so long. We can't keep these people safe from each other. We got weapons coming in and out. Yeah. How, what do we do about that?
1: And 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 that's always going to be a tough one. And uh, and frankly, I don't have the answer for yeah. that one. Because uh, even when I enter the camps, they have weapons. But yeah, it, well they, they all they do. Could, they can feel the police will tell you they, they all They can they can feel your energy, and right. and they know if you're there for something other than what you say you're there for. And they could they could feel that. I've never but they
0: could antagonize each other. They can oh yeah. They they
1: do antagonize each other. If you're on
0: enough meth, I
1: don't care what
0: your energy is, if some guy's got a gun, you could be gone in two seconds. Exactly. So
1: it it, it is it it is and and will be a dangerous situation when you, you you put the fentanyl and the drug abuse in in that environment and then they antagonize each other, and it becomes a combative situation. Yeah, the outlook probably won't be that good, and that's a lot of reason why some of these places are closed down, and some yeah, some people right. don't want to invest in them, is because of that situation.
0: What about, do you know Kevin Dahlgren at all, who works for the city of Gresham? Have you heard of him?
1: I, I think that the name I heard of, but I don't know him.
0: I should connect you, because he does a lot of the same kind of work that you do, and He said, so he does it for the city, but he also has this organization called We Heart Portland that kind of goes around and does it throughout the city. And he, um, his deal is sort of talk to him, like you said, talk to him, get to know him, figure out their story, and then sort of figure out solutions like, you know, every day. um, I mean, he has more time because his his full-time job is working with the homeless for the city, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, he's got more time to s- get to know him and to say literally every day, are you interested in our treatment? Are you interested in going to see a psych and taking your Seroquel? Are you interested in – and eventually they either just leave, they pack up and leave because they're sick of talking to him, or they say, yeah, I mean, I get- I'll go with you, or, yeah, let's go find out what's going on. Get some uh, – get some into ha- some housing, some kind of transitional mm-hmm. housing. If they can't get in housing, get some reunited with relatives – Get some of bus ticket to, to him, Millie's house, what have you? What what? It, and what he says is, he's seen the city house some of these. I and mean, we've got you probably know this. I didn't know this until he did a police ride along, and we were we were in and out of every single one of these all over the city. But this city, and again with the not not no streamlining. I mean, I think the city and county don't even know what they have. This city is filled with no-barrier shelters, for lack of a better word, in what looks like run-down apartment buildings filled with them. Yep. Hundreds of units, really. And um, what Kevin said is we can get people into those, but in two seconds they're back on the street. They don't stay. Nope. Because they're not mentally with it. Uh, The keys are gone in two seconds, or they're pawned um and they make money on the street yep for their substance uh habits and that's how they get their substances is on the street so they don't stay where the city puts them so um i guess another question is okay we've got these uh tiny homes how do we keep people in the darn tiny homes
1: right and um they're they they're staying because in the tiny houses, they have staff there that walks through them with every step. So with, if they have if they are on SSI or getting some kind of money, they help them manage their money. They have uh, money management classes, and they have rental classes to show them how to become a, a rental, a, a renter person. They, uh,
0: but how are they going to attend these classes if they if they're, you know. The day before they were pooping in the street.
1: And because also at that, for instance, at the Kent Women's Village, is they have um, people that works along with them to um, focus on hygiene. So they have uh, peer supporters, as is what they call them, and they, they assign them to each person. And that person walks them through the day of what it looks like to be an, an active human in, in this today's world. Showering, uh, eating, cooking a meal, becoming. But if you're
0: not mentally functioning, and if you're on all these drugs, how do you follow along?
1: In that, in that case. It's a different population. It's a different. It's a different population. I see what you're saying. Right. The
0: Kenton Women's Village is sort of a offshoot. It's a less functional offshoot of the Bybee Lakes Hope Center uh, residence. Exactly. And so, obviously, we are dealing with different gradations of homeless people and there are the people that, I'm sure you stepped over a couple bodies getting here, I always do I mean there are people that I'm waving my hand around towards the window uh, because we're in the middle of downtown right now there are all these people who don't know what their name is, Mm -hmm. don't have ID, don't know the last time they had it don't know anything about anything, could be nude at any second or throwing a barrel under the window and then of course we have people who are maybe a little more interested in maybe they they have some substance issues or they have some mental health issues, but they're interested. They're functional enough that they can follow along with some of these services. And then, of course, we have the Bibly Lakes people who are the one person away from a pay... or one paycheck away, two paychecks away, five paychecks away from being in a townhome or something. And and so is that part of why you say we meet them where they are? We figure out what category are you in?
1: Exactly. We have to figure out... And this is where... I I use the analogy of um, somebody who's in an AA program or a substance abuse program is they have um, a a support person that is with them at all times that they can call on. And that's what we need. A sponsor. A sponsor. We need to set up uh, a a, um, division that's probably just just called sponsors. And their whole job is, I mean, it's going to be hundreds of them. It's got to be thousands. Thousands, yeah. And their whole job is to follow along with a group so they get assigned to uh let's just say Kenton village they get assigned to that village and they it houses 20 people in there and their job is to follow that person along and make sure that they don't reoffend or make sure that they don't slip back just check in on them and and give them a sense of positivity and a sense of human humanity and just let them make them feel like they're they're important again and this, and this is going to be a lifelong thing, so they're going to be going with them. This is their whole primary job, and they're going to do this for the next 30 years or however long it takes until that person can become stable enough to function without the day-to-day help.
0: Well, and I like that because there's some trust there, right. and there's a relationship there that has been built over time, and they get to know them, and they're, to the extent they have family, family, to the extent they have friends, friends who they associate with, who they know on the street, who they don't what their issues are treat get them triage get them to the right people i think i don't i think the people that i know and i'm sure the people in your neighborhood are not really concerned with i think we do a pretty good job with the Kenton women's and the Bybee lakes and the shelters that are being used i th- i think most of us think we're doing an okay job with that population of the ho- homeless I think what most of us are concerned about are this, is this other population that seems to have their brain completely hijacked by mental illness and drugs and can't process a sentence. And what do we, Terrence, what do we do with them? Do we, you know, obviously, except for Measure 11, we've, the drug courts are gone. Yes. So there's no incentive to get treatment anymore. Right. We've got Measure 110. That's been That's a disaster. Good. You're nodding your head. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, you agree. So that's been uh, terrible. And, of course, the police, if they sew shoes, could give somebody a ticket, like they're, they, like they're going to pay it, like they even understand what they're getting. On the back is a number if they want treatment. Apparently, I think 10 people have called that line out of, what, 50,000 or something. Yeah. I don't even know. Um, what, I mean, Terrence, what, what do we do? With that, do we, I mean, if you're king for a day, what are you doing? Are you repealing 110? Are you bringing back the drug courts? What are you doing?
1: I'm repealing 110, bringing back the drug courts, and also I'm funding relentlessly our medical yeah. and our mental facilities, building facilities for folks to be uh, long-term treatment centers. Yes,
0: and detox, and right? De-
1: it's, it put just funneling money into these
0: we at, don't have at, it anymore. at
1: zero expense. It doesn't matter. I'm funding yeah, we don't have it anymore. It's all reduction. Exactly.
0: It's needle exchange programs and fly by night nonprofits.
1: We have we have to invest in in, in, in the mental in the in the in the, in the wealth of mental p- folks. And that means we need to funnel money into it. We have to create spaces for people to go to these um uh, I agree. It's gotta
0: long-term. be long term. It's gotta be yeah. ninety days. It's gotta be more. It's gotta like be 20.
1: more. I mean if they need if they need it for for a year. For life. For life, we have to be ready to For life. We, we need to be all in.
0: I agree.
1: We just can't have it for just the wealthy. I agree. You, you, you know, if well, and a
0: lot of the wealthy end up under the Burnside Bridge, right? Because their parents' drug court's gone, and unless they shoot somebody or get charged with a Measure Eleven crime, the parents can't compel them into treatment. Right.
1: So we have to, at some point, just say we, we can't baby proof it enough. Now we need to force them to do something better.
0: How do we sell this? Because nobody here seems interested in
1: that. And then that's that's going to be the hard part. And I think we. We have to sell it as, and the, I think the most persons that are against this is people who don't have children or someone that they know that is affected by this si- situation. Right.
0: Mine is my sister, and so, my other one is my dad, and that's mental illness. My sister's drugs. And
1: the way we're going to have to sell this is is we have to just, I mean, we have to flood the system with if this was your loved one, Wouldn't you want somebody to tell you to get treatment? And if we can't tell you to get it on your own, wouldn't you want them to be mandated to get the treatment so that they could be helped? That's how we're going to sell. We we have to sell this to them that, look, Mr. Gates, if this was your only child and he was out on the streets after you did everything you know how to do, you had all the money, but it still wasn't working, Wouldn't you want him to be mandated to go be put in clinical help so that he can get the treatment that he needed? So that's how we're going to have to sell it to to folks that is not not believing their mandated medical treatment.
0: Do you think part of the issue is that these people are – well, I wonder about a couple things. One – I don't know necessarily if it's the city leaders. I do think the city leaders are terrified of the loudest voices in the room. I'll tell you that. I think they are. They pee themselves anytime Antifa says boo, and anytime you know the Stop the Sweeps people show up at Laurelhurst. It's it's just sort of like hands up. We'll do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, the city burned for 180 some days. We we know this about our city and county leaders state frankly the state was absent where the <laughs> hell was the governor and all that exactly i mean <laughs> letting the biggest city the driver of commerce in your state burn for 180 plus days that set fire to the mayor's condo mm. vandalize the city commissioner's house Throw munitions at the justice, set right. so the justice, center justice on fire, the jail. Yeah, I mean they're they're endangering the inmates they care to they claim to care about. Yep. Uh, so you know that's what we have going on, and I think that they're terrified of these twenty year olds screaming about how these people need their liberty, and we're not allowed to force anything on them. So is it is is one step new leadership that can just tune out? that loud,
1: violent element? I'm already seeing that our new leadership is not even ready to stand up for the cause.
0: Talk but, about that.
1: Okay, so like now with our, the, the, the new county chair who's going to take over...
0: Jessica Vega-Peterson.
1: Right, is already not willing to work with the city. Yeah, I saw that. Well, well, we're just gonna bank our money for now. We wanna see the plans. We wanna see what that looked like. Uh, Work with them, help develop the plan, help come up with scenarios. Don't just turn your back and say, I'm not gonna work with you because I don't see a plan. Become, Become part of the solution. Help them with the plan. Dedicate some people to working on that and figuring out what is it gonna take. Not, well, we're not gonna put up our money because we can't see what you're doing. So already, they're not willing to work with each other.
0: My other question is, do you think, and I'm starting to wonder this just philosophically, because I have these conversations, obviously, this is a hobby, this podcast, and I have these conversations with all sorts of people all the time. And I wonder if, it it seems to me that in this city, in Portland, Multnomah County, Oregon generally but certainly Portland we have a contingent of people that I would characterize as true believers Um, some of them I know so I'm sure you do too some of them have worked at the joint office some of them work at the joint office some of them are former commissioners former chairs some of them are current chairs Um, and this I would characterize as true quote unquote true believers like you Terrence could talk to them until they're blue in the face. You you could parade mothers whose k- children have died of fentanyl overdoses because they couldn't be compelled into treatment, and they would hold up their hands and say, "Well, I f- you know I feel terrible for you and your children, Mrs. So and So, but uh, that's I- I'm not interested in infringing on people's liberties." Exactly. So isn't it also a cultural problem in this city?
1: It, it's definitely a cultural problem.
0: It's like some kind of ideological problem where you and I could give them all the data in the world. We could line up the Terry Andersons of the world, who's you know whose son died a, under the Burnside Bridge and, and couldn't get couldn't get institutionalized for a schizophrenia, and and it wouldn't make a darn like a difference because they're. They're not open to, these are not flexible people.
1: Right. They, they're, they're scared to make a decision that would be for the greater good.
0: Or they don't believe it.
1: They, right.
0: Yeah, so so Terrence, I mean, we live here. I, I don't know about you, but I'm, for a number of reasons, I have to live here. How do we proceed, how do people like you and I proceed knowing that we've got this huge cultural problem on our hands of people who basically just want to see the status quo continue? I mean, they'll argue they don't. They'll argue a house will solve it. You and I know that's not going to work. They'll argue a tiny village will solve it. You and I know that that only works for some of the population. And again, with the houses, the houses certainly works for probably most of the population, but that's not the population we are concerned about. We can help them. We can help those people, and we have plenty of money to do it. I think you and I and and the the voters out there, most of them who talk about, quote-unquote, homelessness, are thinking about the bodies that that we had to step over to get into this building who don't seem to have the capacity to, to hold a fork the right way, let alone get into a tiny village and follow along with showering instructions yes and and so isn't it i mean don't you find it just really draining on you mentally and physically to know that that may never get solved and to have to walk past what is is basically? Of, is, it, we're living in fourth world conditions here. We are subjecting people to inhumane, disgusting, horrific conditions. I mean, we, I've been to fourth world cities. They don't look like this. I mean, I, you can walk through, plenty of places in Africa and not step over bodies in the sidewalks.
1: Absolutely, and and that's my whole problem with creating these mega campuses. Is you're creating skid rows. You, you're, you're creating. Um, uh more dysfunction and you and you going to just uh create a society of poverty status in one location so my belief is i believe in hope
0: give me hope
1: hope, <laughs> hope is is what will keep me going yes because i know that on the other side of this, there is an answer. Yes, there we is a do solution. That,
0: but we don't know that the answer will come to fruition.
1: Exactly. We just don't know we don't will it come to fruition <laughs> before my time before is we up. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's and that's, and that's the truth. But that hope still gives me hope that we will eventually get to the other side.
0: Give me hope. How do you pour some of that into me? Do you,
1: do My hope is this, is I believe in the three H's, help, health, and humanity. And if we can do that, we can solve this problem. And that's the hope, is that we believe in helping somebody, getting somebody some uh some, some humanity we, we want we, we, we got to build people up and stop tearing people down yes and and and, and, the, and, and that's my hope is that and, and and that's hope is that we continue to put people in position of power that could bring that hope to fruition
0: Yes that maybe can help change the culture. And then maybe conversations like this, maybe Neighbors Helping Neighbors, other organizations that are similar, banding together. Obviously, you know Jesse, you know TJ. I mean, if, if we can work together, there seems to be strength in numbers and maybe we can move that Overton window, that that window of acceptable political discourse in a, in a positive direction so we can start addressing this horrific, humanitarian crisis that is going on in this city that is it i think it's i mean you were in the military did you did you serve in a war or anything I'm sure you know people who did. I
1: know people who did, and yes.
0: And it affected them, right? It, I mean, it, it, it affected them profoundly.
1: It, it does, absolutely.
0: And I think these people on the streets, these these, I, I would characterize them as, as non the non-functional homeless that, that we, we sort of need some sort of a compelling mechanism for. They're, that trauma that we're inflicting on them by just stepping over them and allowing them to, to live in the gutters and... And I don't know what the mayor's plan for them is going to be Force them to to live in these camps, which is not realistic. Right. I mean, you and I know that, you know, they're going to be gone two, back on the streets in two seconds. So um, that's just not realistic. It, it, obviously, they've got trauma after trauma after trauma. How do they come back from that? And then I think those of us living around this and raising young children for Pete's sake, there's trauma for us Watching the, the homeless people's trauma unfold. Yes. And for you working with them yep. and seeing open wounds and feces and just people, these are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and grandchildren yep. who are treated like
1: filth. Yes. Yeah. And just like I can go and get uh, some mental counseling and help, that's what I want for them because of course. because I'm out there every day and, and just like you said, that has a profound effect on, on on our mental. So why can't we have the services for them? Why can't it be well, we available don't make for them take it? Right.
0: We we think it's you know we think it's encroaching on their liberty. We we you know we've just got to change that standard. I like your ideas. Um, who do you like politically? I mean, who should we be supporting politically? That maybe there's an up and comer that we don't know about, or who somebody that you're working with that you think gets it.
1: You know, I haven't found that person yet. <laughs>
0: But we'll work they, on
1: it. We're going to work on it. I think they think they get it. I,
0: I've met a lot of those, too.
1: But they don't really get it. Yeah. They get it enough to get them in office, and then they forget it. But my job is to hold them accountable for it. Because and
0: how do you do that? Because they
1: said it. And how I'm going to do that is I'm going to be downtown at the commissioner meetings reminding them of their slogans, reminded them of the words they said, reminded them that that there are still people on the street that represent what you said, that need what you said, and we want you to uphold what you said. I'm going to be in Salem holding Tina Kotek to what she said. Holding her to those first 100 days in office is to get people the help that they need to get them off the street. I'm going to hold her accountable to those So that means I'm going to spend my time in those offices when I'm not out picking up trash and talking with my houseless folks. I'm going to be holding them. When I see them doing less than what they said to do, I'm going to call them out on it. And I'm going to make other Oregonians hear my voice telling them that you're not doing what you said you was doing that got you elected into the office.
0: But doesn't she have ideological differences with you? I mean, sure. when I met her, she said housing's a public good.
1: She, she does. She does. And she wasn't my first pick. Right. She wasn't my choice. Right. So I went with the lesser of the greater goods. Right. So.
0: But how do you communicate with somebody like that? Because she seems to me to be a, tr- a true believer that might be impervious to lobbying or to listening to ideas or to, I mean, she might say, well, I am, I'm, I'm totally accountable. I'm, I'm engaged in infill. I mean, I'm engaged in, uh, I'm working with developers to build 300 condos at, uh, $500,000 a piece that we're going to put these people in.
1: And I'm going to say, well, are they going to be low enough income that somebody can afford it? Are you making sure that the funding is gonna be available to subsidize that income so that people will be able to stay put in those homes. Are you doing something to get folks off the street to get them the medical care that they need? Are you doing what, what it's gonna to take to get uh, mental facilities built and house folks? What are you doing? Not that you're working with a developer to help them line their pocket, right? right. But are you doing something to exactly? Which are you doing something to help the folks that are on the street get off the street and get the medical, mental, and housing that they need?
0: And really, when we talk to these people, and Jesse Burke made this point, and I think it's brilliant. I think when we talk to these people, if you all are interested in doing what Terrence talked about and attending these meetings and talking to these politicians and trying to hold them accountable and ferreting out, you know, people that, that you think can actually engage in leadership. We have got to make distinctions between these different boxes of homeless people. We've got our functional homeless people who are just a couple paychecks away from living in a, a nice town home or something. And those are apparently that's the majority of our homeless people and that is what the state, the city The county seems focused on, and I get it, because if that's really the majority, then sure, that's what they're focused on. But I think we also have to make a distinction when we speak with these people about, um, and and just say up front, I want to know what you're going to do with the people asleep on the sidewalk. Exactly. Because sober, mentally with it people don't sleep on sidewalks. Exactly. Try it. Try it for a second. Yeah. I mean, you'll get up and... Um, you might... Mm-hmm. La- I mean, my nine-year-old thinks she's funny and says, oh, I could do this forever. I mean, you, she lasts a minute. You know, you might last... You or I, um, you know, not being 20-year-olds, I mean, I know I'd last 30 seconds. So, you know, when you see, like, some 50-year-old guy on a sidewalk, I, I, Tina Kotex house, that's not it. That's not the answer, and... We've got to make a distinction with these people about who we're talking about because they will continue to talk past us. They will exactly. say, "Well, you don't understand that that's what that that housing is the solution and that they're just a paycheck away." That's what they'll tell us.
1: Yep.
0: Or they'll say, "And you may understand this as do you identify as as black or African American?" Mm-hmm. So you may you may have heard this. What she told me is the majority of homeless people are BIPOC people. Which stunned me, because I sort of just, I mean, I looked around the room towards the windows and thought, well, I don't, I mean, I don't see any BIPOC people on the sidewalks. So right. Like, okay. And, but she may be right. And those may be the, the, the because um, of uh, historical oppression and the socioeconomic status of blacks versus whites, whites or Asians say less likely to have money to Afford a home to mm-hmm. get a loan, uh, systemic racism, what have you. That makes sense. Okay, maybe a few paychecks away from getting into a town home, but the people are in the gutters. I don't see a lot of BIPOC people in the gutters.
1: No. And I serve. I'm out there every day, and I probably see ten.
0: Right, and you're in Kenton, and I'm in Kenton, and and, and that's not a that's not a well, it's gentrifying. But that's not historically known as a lily white place.
1: Exactly. And i run across 200 white folks, women and men, daily.
0: What's going on? Is that because this is the whitest big city in America, or is that a cultural thing?
1: No, it's because it's the whitest big city in America.
0: So if you went to... You may be right. I think you're probably right. So if we went to, like, Chicago or the Bronx we'd see a lot more BIPOC and people of color splayed Absolutely. out the gutters. I
1: was in Philadelphia in September.
0: Oh, were you in Kensington? I, yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, I was. I
0: cannot believe it. You went to Kensington. I went to Kensington. Everybody who hasn't heard of Kensington, I want you to get on YouTube, and I want you to search up Kensington, and you will know what Terrence just witnessed. I can't believe you went to Kensington. I
1: went to Kensington because I'm familiar with the neighborhood. I mean, I haven't been there in 20
0: years. Do you carry guns? I don't. How did you keep yourself safe there?
1: Because I'm not threatening. Got
0: it. And you don't have a threatening vibe. I
1: don't have a threatening vibe at all.
0: You're from Kensington?
1: I'm from, no, I'm from Phil- West Philadelphia. F-
0: West Philadelphia. But I
1: know of Kensington. Like the
0: Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Uh-huh.
1: I'm, I'm, and I went to <laughs> West Philadelphia and okay. saw the same thing. Yes. So it's it's definitely depending on the community you you're in and the city you're in, whether it's going to be... Majority of black, yes. majority of pocket majority of white folks.
0: Because I was wondering if that's just some kind of white malaise that's going, you know, they talk about this crisis of white men and they're all on opiates and if there's just, I mean that's certainly true in Portland. Mm-hmm. If that's just some kind of white malaise that's going on and maybe culturally black or, or African American Portlanders seem to be able to Not get stuck in that um, in the gutter, really technically. But you're saying, you know, no. If you go to these different cities, it's that phenomenon is everywhere. So, how? Why did you go to Kensington?
1: I because I wanted to see where the homeless pockets were.
0: Well, that's where they are.
1: And and they're in Kensington. They're in South Philadelphia. They're in West Philadelphia. But Kensington is the most biggest one of, of all
0: I think it's the biggest open air drug market in the world maybe
1: yes it is and I saw folks out there just doing what I do in the Kensington area oh you did trying to help
0: well that's heartening did you go by yourself
1: I was I was, I was by my well actually I had my I had my daughter with me your we daughter were, we were out driving around how old is your daughter she's 36
0: oh she's an adult yeah okay. she's an adult okay and she's familiar with your work yes so she
1: knows how to handle herself, I take it. I will I hope she does know how to handle herself. Which I will hope just by, by knowing how I am and how I carry myself. Most of my kids yeah. do carry themselves in a respectful manner. Yeah. So I will hopefully know that w- when she's around uh, a, a situation that is uncomfortable, that she knows to be polite, or non-threatening. Or and if she is uncomfortable, to cross the street and right. not become confrontational with nobody. Because
0: I mean, Ken- Kensington's
1: Kensington is is incredibly dangerous. Yes, it is. It's not a place you want to be caught in if you're if, if, if you're, you're not from around there. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what? Was, so you drove. You didn't walk through. You drove through. I did
1: get out in that parking. Oh, yes, out. because I wanted to meet and see what I, I spoke with the people that were serving food and just kind of hung around there. I didn't go in unknown territory where I was gonna be by myself, but I slowly drove through and parked and got out and, and watched and talked to folks that was, was serving food. I mean, they had a big box truck and was serving lunches off the back of the box truck.
0: Tell, tell us about what you saw and what
1: you heard. Well, I, I heard a lot of thank yous from the folks that were receiving the food. I saw a lot of drug deals go down I saw a lot of yelling and screaming at one another, but I also saw a lot of camaraderie amongst the the houseless living on the street there, and most of it was in uh, a business district. It was along right. along the Kissington section in the busy busy business district. But was that
0: was that bordering Fishtown?
1: Bordering Fishtown, yeah. yes. hmm
0: Yeah, which is sort of gentrifying.
1: It's gentr- Yes, it is.
0: And so they're they're, it's interesting. If, if you go to this area of Philadelphia, it is interesting because there's this area called Fishtown that's gentrifying, and and these businesses are m- actually moving in there, right? Right on, I mean, across a block, and you're in Kensington. Yep. And and these condos, these like, I don't know, half a million dollar condos right. being Sa- built.
1: same as like what's happening here. These that's condos exactly be right. Being built
0: or the Hoxton in yeah. Old Town. Yep. Or, yeah, it's interesting this juxtaposition of. Lux and you know a, a body in the gutter or or a, or, or a drug deal or you know sixty nine bullets splaying around mm-hmm. just right outside the door. Um, that's interesting. And and then what did you observe? Did you observe anything or learn anything that you could bring back with you here to Portland?
1: I didn't learn anything that would um, bring back to Portland that would say could help. Because I wasn't there long enough to observe anything, or to talk to any city officials or anybody to get numbers and and what they were doing to try and and help the houseless. So I wasn't there long enough to to get any of that kind of information.
0: What is it like living here in the biggest white city in America? And what
1: keeps you here? What keeps me here is uh, it's my home now, and and. I don't fear to run away from a problem. I want to try and, and tackle that problem head on and, and become a part of the solution. So I'm not going to run from it because you, you run from one problem here, you just run into another one somewhere else. And so what keeps me here is the hope for change. That life here in Oregon will be better for everyone. And if we work hard enough and we are, are forceful enough to get people to see the change and see different and think differently, that we can make some real progress.
0: And and I know this state has a horrific history of racism, but it seems like we should be able to create a bigger, diverse community. We just cannot seem to do it. Terrence, I can't tell you how many friends I make, people of color that just, they, they get here and they think it's going to be fine and they've heard, you know, there isn't a big black community. It's mostly mostly my black friends. They, they heard there isn't a big black community, mostly black lawyers, because I'm a lawyer. And they get here and they're like, I, I can't do this.
1: Right. And, and a lot of uh, mostly black women that I have met here that have sat on the kitchen yes. board with me, it's, it's, it's not good for a no. black woman. And and they they thought coming here to make it make seems a new life ex- exactly. They and
0: in fact they seem obsessed with race. It seems to be the only thing they could well, talk
1: about. Well, they obsess with the idea
0: yes, of race. That's right.
1: They don't want to change it.
0: We'll talk more about that.
1: Uh, we have a lot of white guilt.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we do have a lot of people that want to. Really make change and and do understand that uh, that culture has harmed black and brown people in the U.S. here, and um, and we have we have some some real genuine folks that that don't believe the way their culture believe and they want to make that change, but then we have on the, on the other side of that we have the folks who like the idea of it that I'll post a sign or I'll talk cordial to you but my immediate circle is still all white um,
0: but it's hard to not have an immediate I mean my immediate circle is mostly all white because I lose I I'm losing people to to more cosmopolitan more diverse cities
1: exactly and 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 that's and it, and it stems from Everybody that I've, I've run into who says that they're, oh, I'm not racist. I got this one black friend. You're racist. Yeah. Because you lead off with that. I got this one black friend right. that I went to high school with. Right. <laughs> that's that's your stereotypical. Uh, right.
0: Yeah, it's a joke. It's exactly. a joke or a meme or, yeah. Right. Um, but in Portland, but, I think a lot of it's true because they're, they're, these people are not, unless they travel or unless they go to other big cities or unless they have friends that... They've made elsewhere that they can go visit. They don't have a lot of exposure. They, they to don't get a lot of exposure.
1: Right? They don't get a lot of exposure, especially in Oregon, where you know, like you said, it's the whitest city in America, and um, most of us either wound up here by mistake or. Our family married into a white culture from right, somewhere else wound right. up here, or we wound up here by, by...
0: I talked to Lionel Irving, who was, I think, if I remember correctly, his folks were in Vanport. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, started over there.
1: Yes, and that's where a lot of... Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: It started in Vanport, and then you just kind of wound up here, right. and everybody knows you, and you became friends with... And, and and you got this one black friend that you went to school with that you grew up with you grew up in the same neighborhood and 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 that's how you became associated, but you don't make a, an effort to be around other black folks. You don't make an effort to try and change the people that you're with. You still become privy to those those racial jokes and you're okay with it.
0: Like what? what, what like let like
1: say uh, if you're in a group of white folks and and people are talking about. Um, making black jokes, of, oh look at that little nappy here black girl and stuff like that there, or making uh, any kind of racist oh, you comment, a comment.
0: that they think, that they is think benevolent, it, right?
1: And when you sit and you yes. listen to that, then yes. you then, then you're not racially sensitive or or racially embodied into making change in your so, social circle.
0: Or saying things like, it's, "I love being around black people," right?
1: Exactly. oh, I, oh, I love black people.
0: I mean, try so, try saying something like that to a group of friends in Georgia or right. Chicago. It sounds insa- It sounds idiotic, and and insane. It,
1: it, 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 it is and, provincial, and, right? That's what it is. exactly.
0: Portland is very provincial. Exactly. What so? What is your advice for these people?
1: My my advice is is people who 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 really do believe. In the cultural change and making um, systemic change in the racial injustices, they do more than just hang a sign. They do more than just um, be part of a, a protest. They also change the people that they're involved with. How?
0: They, How do they do that? They uh,
1: include include their, they be they, they're intentional about people that they're around that are people of color. They are intentional about. Um uh This
0: is gonna sound really stupid, but in Portland, I can just hear the listeners saying
1: how do how do I find them?" We're everywhere <laughs> <laughs> We're everywhere true <laughs> but, but but you, you I in mean small numbers. It's, it's small numbers, but you don't have to go seek us out you can you can see, you can you can show your voice by not allowing. Certain things happening in 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 your social circle. Like what? Like if if you're sta- if you know for sure that your girlfriend is a racist, you cut ties with that person. Well, of course. If you know for sure, or if you want to try in Portland, it, I, mean. I know. So you, so you're poppy, so your friends are gonna become pretty thin.
0: I, in <laughs> Portland, though, I, see, and I disagree with that. I I don't know. I don't know that that's right. I think. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a real, proud boy, David Duke. I mean, I'm talking about real racism. You know, the right. kind that like Clarence Thomas says he experienced when he was a kid. I, I Certainly, that exists in all sorts of places across the country. I don't see a lot of tolerance for that here.
1: Right. You won't see that type of racism see, here.
0: Uh, yeah, overt. I don't, I don't see any overt racism. Yeah, you
1: won't there. see any, any overt. It's, it's very subtle. Uh-huh. And, and, Talk and, more
0: about that. And, and
1: people do it, but they do it in subtle ways. Or they'll be saying, um, yeah, that's – or they'll, they'll – like one, one guy would say to me, it's like, I don't like, it, you know, the way, the way black people do that. Why do they do that? Why do they, they – all black people are in gangs. And then they'll turn to me and they say, oh, but not you, Terrence, because you're you're, you're nice. Yeah. Uh, it, it's
0: it's an inability, and I don't know how we fix that without literally, this is gonna, I can't <laughs> say this because it sounds like a darn slave analogy, but literally importing people of color, and even then, they, they're not, in general, I mean, the people that we were trained to recruit when I was back at a big law firm, you know, the whole deal was how many black people can we get to work here? I mean, it, and and there are so it, it, there, because it takes so long to get these, I think right. now black women are doing pretty darn well, and there's a fair amount of them in law school, but it takes a while to get these people through the pipeline, of course, and, and to get some, you, the legislation and the court rulings that we need to put, put strictures in place to make room for for black people to attend and, and socioeconomic reasons mm-hmm. and also all you know what all of those things, all those complicated factors. And I feel like we're finally getting there. But of course I'm old enough where it it, it was much fewer and further in between. And the people that we could get to come to Portland would interview with us, but then they'd end up in, in you know, far better jobs. I mean right. they'd end up in house at Nike because ever they're so sought after. They're like um, and I say they, 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 and you're sitting right across from me, which also sound, is wrong. But it's um, it's an oddity to Portlanders. It, black people are oddities. There just there aren't enough of them. And I don't know. It's almost like we need to send all these people um, away to summer camp to live in in Atlanta for a year, or to but, live. But it's
1: all about intention. Yes. If we if we are intentional about our work practices. Yes about how how we interact with people and if we are intentional that we want to want to have a type of a business or organization where we are inclusive of all people.
0: But I don't know a place in Portland that isn't, do you? I mean that's all I hear is DEI DEI.
1: That's a joke.
0: So you think it's performative.
1: That's that's all performative. I
0: got it. Okay. You think because it's all lip service?
1: That's it's, it's all lip service because they, they, they every, DEI. They, they say, yes. okay, we're going to hire an African American yes. to head up our DEI, right? And but just because I'm black, don't mean I have the answer to right. how to run a DEI group and make it inclusive. So we like again, it's we have to. It's the ideology, and we do it because the state says we have to do it. But are we really making that initial change? Are we going to really focus our business on being inclusive and being uh, culturally sensitive to other cultures? Or are we doing it just because we have to do it, but we're not going to make the real sacrifice and change? I
0: mean, I think they... Yeah, and I don't know their hearts. Exactly. But certainly that's all they talk about. All they talk about is how they want to do that. All they talk oh, yeah. about is how they want to fill their businesses with with black people and and certainly when I worked at this law firm we just couldn't I mean, and they were in lawyer positions, they weren't in DEI positions. Uh, we just we couldn't hang on to them right. for some, various reasons. I mean, a lot of it was Portland. It's just hard to sell people on Portland. It is. And I get it. I mean, I don't want to be somewhere where n- nobody looks like me and I don't have a community.
1: Right. Or we, we're lucky enough to get somebody in there, but the the environment is still the same. Oh, yeah, we hired this one black person and they're thriving, but the rhetoric is still the same. The
0: Talk, the, talk about the rhetoric. Like, what um, needs to change?
1: How you interact with them, the... the how, how you treat them. Um oh, you can't dress like that here. We don't dress like that here. Or you can't wear your hair that way. So you don't let them be black. I they think gotta that's look
0: illegal now.
1: I, I do think it is, but it's 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 those subtleties. They 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 it's the subtleties way they do it to make it seem but it is it, it it is illegal to tell somebody that, you know, you can't dress like that or you can't wear your hair like that. But they I will try – they will definitely try it, and it has been, and I know personally that it has been. Oh, I'm
0: sure. Wh- wh- what do you think about this? I talked to somebody who said that they felt uh, – a, bl- a bl- black person law firm, and they um, they didn't feel confined in those kinds of ways. They felt like they could dress how they wanted, and they felt like they could frankly um, you know, wear an alpha every day. It was a female – if she wanted to, and, and kind of engage how she wanted to. But what she didn't like was being paraded around, so to speak, or just sort of, you know, pushed out in the front of the firm photo.
1: To be the token, yes.
0: Yeah, that's right. Or known, it was like, she said, what I was known for was being the black lawyer,
1: mm-hmm. but not
0: for my competence. Right. And, and I was... And she said, "I was invited to join literally every single committee at the firm, which was supposed to be a compliment, but I knew that it was because of my skin color. Yep, because they wanted to trot trot me out uh, to clients and to to and of course for their photos and and for their, um, you know, for their." whatever, if, if a big company was going to hire them, they wanted to make sure to put her front and center, or fr- front and center in front of the judge, or... Yep. I mean, there really is a delicate balance of just treating people like people, right?
1: There, there is. And most times when you get... The DAI groups, they always get just usually one black person in, and that black person gets taken to everything, and gets yes. <laughs> gets all the recognition for everything just because of they need to show that they are being inclusive.
0: Right. Yeah. Yes.
1: Not because of their skills. Not because of what they bring to the table.
0: I had it's it, it, and it extends past skin color because I had a lawyer in here who is a conservative, but he he went by a pseudonym because he didn't feel comfortable speaking frankly, about being a conservative because he is afraid he'll lose, and I think he probably would. I mean, he's afraid he'll lose work mm-hmm. if he talks about how he really views things politically in a candid way. Um, but he's, he's also gay. And he said he, one of the reasons he hated, he works for himself now, and one of the reasons he hated working for law firms in Portland is because he felt like this is our gay lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he felt trotted out. He felt um, he was always being, you know, he was counted. It was a head count. Right. We've got you over here. We've got you over here. And he said, I just wanted to be known for my competence or my incompetence. Right. I mean, shit, if I'm not doing a good job, like, please tell me. But I don't want to be known as the gay lawyer.
1: Exactly. Because racism comes in all forms. It's not just in colors, color of your skin.
0: Right. Prejudice. Yes, yep. does. Yes. Or, or at least Jesus. I mean, Portland is just we're just terrible at being able to. And I think, like you said, with the white guilt and the, uh, so nervous because we don't we've never interacted with anybody that looks different than us. And we don't mm-hmm. know anybody who looks different than us. and We don't know what to say. And that's right. Um, and that same woman who said she didn't have an issue with wearing an afro or anything said, um during george floyd she had all these (laughs) you may have had this too white people coming up to her apologizing
1: yes
0: (laughs) and i said well how did you i mean is that and i don't i don't know i don't know your experience of being black in portland so what was that like was that a negative experience for you was that a positive experience for you and she was like she just closed her eyes and said it's a very negative experience do you
1: feel yes. that way? Uh, yes, because you didn't do anything to me. <laughs> and um, to be just coming up to, 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 to apologize, it's like, almost like saying, okay, we believe you now. It's like, no, it's just. Yeah,
0: like what are you doing for my community then?
1: Right. They don't just apologize to me. You know, they, what are you going to do now?
0: How did you feel, like forget about the protest for a minute, how did, how did you feel about the way this city responded to George Floyd with, with the, the burning and the, I mean it was just night after night after night after night. Do, do you think, because Lionel Irving came in here and he, he's got a non-profit that I think just recently got funded. He's. um, Do you know him? He's a black community leader. mm -hmm. Okay, so and I enjoy him a lot. But um, he and I had a really interesting conversation in a, a relatively large amount of daylight between us. In terms of the the for lack of a better term, the riots, even even the looting, what have you. He thought that was necessary. He thought that that helped the black community because um the there, uh, the demands that he felt were necessary ended up being met or at least heard um do you have any opinion about any of that kind of stuff?
1: I do, and that's where 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 I differ with with Lionel is um we don't react that way, and the, the looting didn't get our demands met it actually um in my opinion um all that overshadowed the George Floyd movement and the Black Lives Matter issues because it became a focus on the looting and the burning. So so the messages about uh, getting things answered for the black community got lost in all that and was not heard. Did some things get mentioned and are being moved through the system? Yes, but it wasn't because of the... The, the looting that I don't think the looting helped. The looting that, that happened happened in a large portion of uh BIPOC and black businesses that got damaged and hurt.
0: Yeah, he disagrees with that. But I, I you know, I I know one a girlfriend of mine downstairs runs one and it's yes, that happened to her yeah. and he he said, well, it wasn't that many, so he tends to disagree with that, but I, one, I think the data says
1: differently. The data says differently. I've witnessed it, and one, two, are too many. It, it, That's it, right. It hurted black businesses. Um, the the busting of windows and the looting of the businesses and banks, you know, causing more harm on them, didn't make them change the way they, they, they operated their business. It just caused them some financial stress, but it didn't it didn't make... It it didn't change the justice system by burning the the courthouse and by burning the the, the, uh, jail cell. It didn't change how they are operating uh, within the courthouse and within the uh, justice system down there. But it is making some movement happen to change the way um, the system views uh, black lives when they come into a courtroom but overall, those things was was being put in place before this happened.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously he he saw it different, and he's on the um, that fitcog team, which I think he, he thought was a good. Mm-hmm. Uh, something good to come out of it. And then, of course, what's going on right now, and I'm interested in what your thoughts about this. I don't know if you saw this article, but apparently Portland is the most dangerous place in America for um, black people in terms of homicides. You're more likely to be killed here.
1: You know, I don't know if that's actually true or not. Even though... Did you I, read seen, that? I did read that, and I didn't. I don't find the data to to actually support that, because I mean, Chicago in West Philadelphia. I mean, when even when I visited West Philadelphia, there were shootings and killings there. Right. Well, you know, right then and there. So I don't. I don't. I don't I think believe that They're looking to be, at it
0: on a per capita basis. I
1: th- they are looking at it on a per capita basis, but even then, I still. I still don't 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 think that we're right up there on par with Chicago, as you know they say,ing with uh, the number of murders that are happening here. Now, are they cap? Are they counting that as gun murders and fentanyl murders, or are they all lumping them all together? Well,
0: yeah, let's look at it. So this is from Willamette Week. Um, Nigel Jockwis, who I who I like, and Aaron Mesh, August eleventh, twenty twenty one, and they say uh, Black Portlanders are more likely to be murdered than their peers in cities better known for crime. In the 12 months ending June 30th, more than one in every thousand black people living in Portland died in a homicide. And it says it's a rate far higher than that experienced in U.S. cities most known for gun violence. Portland saw 94 homicides in that period, according to newly released Portland police bureau figures. And of that number, 39 victims that is 41% were black and black people only make up five point eight percent of the city's population. I mean, when you put it that way, it makes sense, right? Right.
1: When you put it that way, yeah, because we, you know, we do. It's ha- just
0: such a tiny fraction, right? And that's a lot of bodies being murdered for such a tiny fraction of the population. Uh, it says, put another way, black Portlanders were killed at about seven times their share of the city's population and 12 times the rate of white people. 39 black victims killed in Portland in that one year mark a 250% increase from the 11 black homicide victims in 2019. Black people have, uh, this is from Portland State University's Criminal Justice Policy Research Institute, black people have been disproportionately harmed by gunfire, black homicide, particularly gun violence victimization in Portland and across the US has been higher than other racial ethnic groups and significantly overrepresented compared to population percentages. That increase in Portland is astounding and unprecedented in local history. Um, it says a significantly higher rate than their peers in cities better known. And the calculations are based on murder tracking sites and FBI and census da- data that includes Chicago, which is seventy-seven per hundred thousand. So much bigger population mm-hmm. of black people. Philadelphia, sixty-four per hundred thousand. Black Portlanders died at a higher rate than black Baltimoreans at nearly double rate of black Los Angelinos. Um, what? What do you? What are your thoughts about that? And what are your thoughts about? Boy, what is there
1: a solution to this? My thoughts about that is uh, when you look at it like that, far as the the uh, the number of uh, black people here in Portland, yeah, it, it seems like we we're being killed at an exponential rate.
0: What is going on there?
1: And um, what what is going on is. Is uh, weapons are easily accessible. Um,
0: but they're accessible everywhere. Everywhere, right? yes.
1: Um, I just think people don't have a care for other people's lives.
0: It's definitely true.
1: And um, I don't know how we curb this. I don't know how we curb. I mean, we. I
0: mean, we've got 16 year olds being shot out in front of Cleveland High School.
1: Right. Exactly. You know and there's been three in the last few months between yeah, the two hot jefferson and cleveland and it's um and then with the the measure um, what, what measure is that for the uh, 114
0: 114 the gun? yeah the
1: gun being installed and
0: in I don't think that helps with anything I don't I don't think people using these guns are going to petition their local law enforcement officer Ex- for a permit exactly
1: <laughs> they're, they're not <laughs>
0: Somebody tells me that their first thought is not gonna be let's go to the sheriff's office and get this thing registered. Exactly.
1: Right. They they won't be doing that. So <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think uh the, the police disbandment of the gun violence reduction team hurt because those folks made a, a huge uh impact and they they had a um a visibility in the black community, and they had a relationship with with, with those, these groups of folks to kind of um, minimize the the gun impact. And uh, now that we don't have that, that's when we saw the increase in the gun violence.
0: Well, and school resource officers and school right? resource
1: officers, yes, absolutely. Because
0: I talked to um, Aaron Schmotz from the Portland Police Association, and he said they, those school resource officers, in fact, they had just won an award before they were yanked out of there by the superintendent in the city, and um, for their ability to keep kids out of the criminal justice system. Yep. So did you did you did you know that? Because did, I didn't know that until he walked in here and said that. Yeah,
1: I didn't know that either. That they had one of the I thought ward. that was fascinating yeah.
0: that he um, said that their whole job was to keep kids out of the criminal justice system, get to know the family. I mean, it makes sense, but I, I was just we live in this city of Portland in this defund the police culture and and. I, I'm reading all this stuff about how unions are the problem and they keep the bad cops in, and then I'm hearing this union president tell me um, things like, you know, I, things that were I was frankly shocked to hear him say, um, like it's very important to form relationships with these kids' families. Mm-hmm. It's important to get to know these students very well, know their friends, where where do they live, um, who do they like, who do they not like, um, who are their teachers. Right. Do they like their teachers? Are their teachers nice to them? Do their teachers like them? Are they turning their work in? And he said, if you're there every single day, if you're one of those school resource officers every single day forming these relationships, you can proactively step in when, he said, we hear stuff. They tell us stuff. They trust right. us. Yep. And they'll say, somebody's coming by, and they're going to kill me. And he, or, or I want to kill myself, or I want to get involved in some kind of activity that may or may not be good for me. And he said, we can then step in and protect these kids from things like getting involved in the criminal justice system um, proactively and, and you know, do what we need to do to ferret out what the criminal element actually is that's hurting this student from succeeding.
1: Yep, that's right. And I, I totally I was a proponent of the uh, school resource officer.
0: Yeah, that's what you said.
1: And I can't believe it. That uh, they would actually remove them. I mean, was there some bad, you know, things that may have happened? Not everybody was perfect. Exactly. But uh, as 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 we go on, you see how things have progressively got worse when we removed certain things from, from our school system.
0: Getting shot out in front of your school when you're 16, I'd say for sure. And then that's, of course, another area in which there's some daylight between people like you and me and Lionel, because we talked about that as well. And he really believed that that gun violence reduction team was an absolutely racist system that was designed to harass black people. And believed that the elimination of that was certainly a step in the in the right direction. And then, of course, if you talk to police, including police of color, and I think it's in order, if, if you're going to make an argument that Lionel's wrong, I think you've really got to talk to police of color. Right. And it's it's more helpful to talk to natives, right. you know, and people who grew up before these a lot of these neighborhoods were gentrified, like North Portland, who mm. know North Portland, uh-huh. who went to high school with these kids. And they'll say, I've known, you know, I know these families, I know these kids, I've known these all these families since high school. And and they'll say, I can tell you, we we had a list and we don't anymore. Yep. And so there's no way to keep track of these guns. There's no, I can't c- categorize anybody. I can't classify anybody. I can't say gang. I can't keep a list of who I believe to be in a gang. Right. Right. And and to to deny if you talk to them they'll say to deny that gangs exist is dangerous. It is. I mean, do they? Do you believe that they
1: exist? Oh, well, of course, yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and then and I think that is that it, maybe that cultural narrative is changing because now they're putting back in the school resource officers. But boy, that's a little too late.
1: <laughs> yeah, to say the least.
0: Wait for a bunch of kids to get shot outside their school. Yep. Okay, Terrence, what? Where do we go from here? Like, what what kinds of things do you want to see the city engaged in, um, and and what are what are your current projects that you're working on?
1: There's there's a lot of hot button topics, but my there are. my my, <laughs> my number one <laughs> topic right now is houselessness. We have to fix this problem, and I mean, there's a lot of hot topics, but um mine is dealing with the issue of houseless people living on the street in squalor situations and why we have do you to think do that's
0: that. the one why is that so near and dear to you
1: because we're all we all are human we all are are prone to mistakes um we all deserve what I what I believe is an American right is a place to live running water, and food to eat, and until we solve some of those problems, we're not going to curb the theft. We're not going to curb the um, terrorizing of the communities because of having houseless folks trying to survive in the neighborhoods, and none of that is going to be curbed until we start treating humans like they are human and giving them and, and and people will disagree that you know they shouldn't be. Why should they? I, they have anything? I, I work for this. Why can't they work? At some point.
0: Well, you know, a lot of them are unable to do that. And a lot
1: of them are yes, and, and for many reasons. And it's not my place to judge why, no. how it, you got and, there. And we've
0: got to acknowledge it is what it is.
1: It is what exactly, and that's 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 my focus, and 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 uh, what's my hot topic gets you is just that right there.
0: And you do all this mediation between homeless people and housed people. What is it, do you think about you, or how did you learn these skills to be able to... I, that's tricky. How did you learn the skills to be able to get to get people to talk to each other and treat each other like human beings?
1: Just by living life. Being in the service was one of them. I had to talk to families when you have to tell them that their loved one is not coming home. And... um Uh, Just um, being a person of compassion just led me to know how I want somebody to approach me, how I know I want somebody to talk to me, and I know that two argumentative people aren't going to solve anything. And love wins always.
0: Terrence, I really appreciate you coming in. This has been fun to talk to you, and I've learned a lot. And I think uh, anybody who's listening, please go to Neighbors Helping Neighbors. You can donate. You can volunteer. You can also do things like adopt a family for Christmas because Terrence is engaged in that kind of work as well. And if you're in the Kenton area and you see him around, stop by and say hi. Ask him what you can do to help. Um... How often do you are you organizing these trash pickups? Is it still once a week?
1: Oh, oh no, I'm out six days a week.
0: You're out six days a week.
1: Oh yes, this is this, this is a, you know, it's one of those people ask me, uh, why would I want to do this kind of work and do I enjoy it? I'm like, I enjoy picking up trash. Now, do I wish that it was a job? Absolutely not. I don't think I wish this had to be had to exist. I wish people just had the things they need. But it since it does exist, I enjoy doing it.
0: And then, um, the, you were saying like the city doesn't call you anymore. Is that right? Yeah. Sam Adams was calling you on your cell phone and and using you as a consultant for a while.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get the calls. Actually, I don't even get the invites to some of the meetings that I used to get <laughs> invited to. Because uh, I think when it, when somebody objects to the way they see things, they don't want you in that meeting because you can. Call them out on things that they don't want to be called out on right away,
0: and isn't that sad?
1: It's very sad. It's very sad when they
0: can't listen to dissent.
1: Right? They don't want to be told what they're doing wrong.
0: They want to consult with you, and they want things from you so that they can get into office or so that they can um, do engage in their plans correctly. But the minute you say, eh, "There's actually a better way," they don't want to listen.
1: They don't want to listen. Right anything that will stall their plans or their way of thinking they don't want you part of that conversation
0: what do you think of this new quote-unquote new conversation about the mayor trying to compel people into mental health services
1: Um, I think it's uh, me personally I think it's gonna be a hard one to to pass but I think it's needed yeah I think I do think it's needed and it could it will do more good than harm yeah and I hope we can get buy-in on it and I just hope that the community at large will understand why we need this and that um the people that do need it I hope that um the ones that are well enough to actually say yes to it, act on it, and the ones that aren't well enough allow us to help them. Just allow us to take them in and care for them.
0: What You've got some ties, or at least you had, to the city or a little bit of insight into what's going on over there. What the hell happened? Because... Since 2017, it just feels like Mayor Wheeler has been engaged in some totally opposite ideological crusade from what's going on right now. What what do you think caused him to wake up and realize that seeing bodies all over the sidewalk is not a humane thing to, to do in your city?
1: I think what happened was... Um, it was a last-minute-ditch effort. It only just happened during the election. So I don't think it was a thought-out plan. I think it's just something he got to do something now more so than later. And his call was to let's just open up these mega campuses, and there was no thought put in it and behind it and how it's going to operate. But he knew he had to do something, and he knew that the people – that was out there calling for him to do something wasn't gonna back down. But I think it was a, a, it wasn't a rational thought out plan, or it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't rational and thought out. It was a a reactionary plan. And I think it's gonna come back and hurt him more than than he realized.
0: Everything we do in the city and county is reactionary. Mm -hmm. Nothing is based on thought or data or process or.
1: Nope. It's, it's, it's just it's so sad that we we do better um, when there is actual when, when there's tragedy. We're we're not a, we're not a, we're not very good at uh, being proactive. We don't want to do things to keep it from happening. We tend to do better when it happened, and now we need to be that pip that person.
0: Yeah, like kids getting killed out in front of their high schools, right? Yeah, it's it's. um, Well, Terrence, you give me, you gave me hope. You give me hope. I hope you give our listeners hope, 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 because I think we we gotta have something to cling to, some reason to get up in the morning, don't we? And obviously, you have this sense of purpose, which I think is incredible. And I know your neighbors love you for it because I, you know, Jesse's in Kenton, Vicky's Mm -hmm. in Kenton. I know a lot of people in Kenton that just sing your praises every single day. So thank you so much for doing what you're doing. And please patronize um, Terrence's computer repair shop. Tech Net Easy is where you can go, and also go to Neighbors Helping Neighbors. Give them a donation. Tell them you want to volunteer. Terrence, thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me, and I certainly appreciate it.